0: You can donate by credit card at the Bible Live website, www.thebiblelive.com. Or mail your check for The Bible Live to P.O. Box 18888. That's P.O. Box 18888, San Antonio, Texas 78218. Welcome to The Bible Live Quiz Hour. It's time to test and grow your knowledge of the Bible. The entire Bible every year. On Sunday nights at 9, join us here for the Bible Live Quiz Hour. Somebody will ask questions from the Bible Live leads. You call in with the correct answers, and you win. It's just that simple. So get out your Bible, put on your thinking cap, and hit that speed dial. Because here's the host of The Bible Live, your Apache Indian scout through the book of books, Soapy Dollar. Hello, my dear friends. Good to talk with you tonight. Thanks for being with us for The Bible Live quiz show. I appreciate you being out there. Hope you and yours are all doing super well. Everybody healthy and strong. And enjoying each day of your life, joy in the Lord, and Fourth. the 4th of July, exactly right. I'll get around to that, exactly. John's reminding me that the 4th uh, of July weekend, we had a wonderful time, our family did last night, we had, we got a, a six-year-old grand boy, so that always makes all these yes. occasions fun <laughs> when there are children in the mix. That, that's great. So uh, we had a great time and a um, good meal together and uh, and enjoyed uh, fellowship and uh, enjoyed uh, popping some firecrackers and watching some rockets, bottle rockets go out and so on. It, w- it was a good evening. Hope you and yours had a great time as well. Now, this is The Bible Live, and uh, you may wonder, well, where is The Bible Live? Well, The Bible Live is on our podcast. I want to encourage you. Uh, to go to dot thebible thebiblelive.com, and uh, click in there, go to our podcast, and it'll show you the, all of our readings from the Bible. We read through the entire Bible every year, from uh, Genesis to the maps, as they say. We start in, in Genesis in the month of November, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and then go Matthew, uh, Numbers and Deuteronomy, then go Mark, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, and then go Luke. So we bounce back and forth, as you can tell there, through the Old and New Testaments, and but we move straight through both of them, uh, alternating between them. So we are now this week we finished up reading the books of First and Second Corinthians, two letters out of four that we have that have survived two letters that uh, the Apostle Paul wrote to the believers in Corinth uh, because of his love for them. He had lived there a little over three years, three and a half years or so in Corinth. He had a very strong love for the people there and a very good, a very healthy sensitivity to the struggle they had to endure as they lived uh, in a very, very um, pagan, very sinful, very Primitive in some ways, uh, society. It was a port city for one, and then there was this, uh, temple to Aphrodite there with, uh, a thousand, uh, what they call temple prostitutes there at the temple. And so it was, Corinth was a city that was, um, looked down upon by m- most people in the Roman Empire, most, uh, who would be, uh, let's say good people or, um, uh, what would I say um, in the sense of morality or family uh, it would it, it is not a city uh, we talk about Las Vegas being sin city that would be more or less what Corinth was for sure um, in fact is it was even a term of uh, to to if you really wanted to hurt somebody, you'd call them a Corinthian it, uh, derision a term of derision. Uh, on them, so the corinth was a was a very tough tough difficult city god- uh God had used Paul to raise up a family a community of believers there in corinth and um he wrote back to them they had difficult they had very serious problems in the uh congregation but and as you can read the the books of first and second corinthians these two letters are really, really remarkable. Uh, and uh, you can go to our our website, thebiblelive.com, if you'd like, and you can click on those particular books and hear them. I will read them to you, flawless reading, hopefully uh, reading for clarity and understanding so that you'll uh, understand that they're very remarkable letters that Paul wrote to the believers there in Corinth. Uh, this dated somewhere around 55 A.D., which means what? Maybe twenty years or so after the death of Jesus uh, death and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth so I mean this is very very recent, very close to the time uh, of of uh, when when Jesus walked on the earth he in fact, Paul went to live with him of course long before he wrote them letters and he would he lived with him and ministered probably ten to fifteen years after. The events uh, uh, in Jerusalem. So, all of these books of the New Testament are written very, very near, very close to the date dates of the events that they speak of and that they cover. And, and that's one of the reasons that the New Testament, when we evaluate it, uh, his, its historical accuracy, its, its uh, the the reliability uh, from the from the uh, historicity point of view. Oh, the the New Testament is incredibly uh, supported uh, by those who study w- works of uh, antiquity, those who study documents and writings from the past because of several things. One, it's nearness to the date of the actions and activities involved. The number of copies, you may think the number of copies, sometimes people say, oh, there's so many copies, how could it be right? Well, those copies... From a, from a historical point of view, from a historian's point of view, the number of copies, the extant copies of the uh, these uh, documents, uh, they, do, they don't take away from the reliability and the confidence that we can have in the documents. In fact, they build confidence because when you have that many copies over time, you can trace back and you can see if there are... Changes have taken place you can get trace your way back to original language and uh, we can do that almost certainly with the books of the New Testament uh, in particular now the whole the Old Testament as well enjoys a great deal of support uh, historically speaking in terms of its accuracy, its reliability, but for different reasons there are different documents. Uh, written in different eras of time. Uh, but they, if you study the historicity of these documents, and, and it, it doesn't really, historians apply the same rules to every document, whether it's the Bible or the or the works of Ulysses or whatever book it might be from antiquity, historians apply the same basic laws, internal evidence, external uh, archaeology, uh, Different laws that are laid down uh, by a man named Sanders, actually, who wrote kind of the uh, the textbook for historians. So anyway, the the Book of Corinthians. We have these two letters that survived the uh, centuries out of the four uh, that we think were written by Paul to the Corinthians. He he references those letters in these those two letters in these letters as well. So anyway, tonight we're going to finish up the books. Of First and Second Corinthians, and then we jumped on Friday. We went went back to the Hebrew Scriptures, back to the Tanakh, as it is called in Hebrew. We went back to the Old Testament Scriptures and picked up at the oldest book of the Bible, the oldest book of the Bible. I wonder if you know what book that is. If you're thinking the Book of Genesis, no, that's not it. There was a book that covers it that is predates the time. Uh, uh, Well, it doesn't predate, of course, um, creation, but it predates the writing of the books of Genesis. The books of Moses were written during the time of the 40-year wandering in the wilderness after Israel came out of Egypt. But this book, the book of Job, predated those writings, and uh, we'll talk about that, introduce the book of Job tonight and then uh, for the next week or two actually we're going to be in the Book of Job which as it turns out is one of the favorite books uh, that people have. Uh, every year we get more right more emails, more questions, more uh, phone messages, more responses from people who listen to the Book of Job than any other book. it's always been uh, fascinating to me how that happens but we'll look we'll get into the book of job in our third segment this evening. Right now though I want to give you our phone number 210-340-9585. 210-340-9585 and if you'd like to give me a call uh, you can call in and talk about anything biblical you'd like. Maybe a question about God or about the Bible, uh, or about uh, what it means to know God and to walk with God. Uh, what What is happening in our world today? Now, the Bible uh, is a book uh, of antiquity. It's a book written original writings, uh, you know, hundreds hundreds of years ago. the The New Testament. Uh, Some around 2,000 years ago, 1,900 years ago. And so there's no doubt about it. These books are old, and the the books of the Old Testament uh, go back even further. But they are as relevant and as true today as they were the day they were written. And the principles that we gather from these books uh, about God, the Creator, about who God is, about his character, about his... um, the, the his uh, priorities that God has in the world today, what as, as God judges men and nations, as Benjamin Franklin said, uh, what are His criteria? What is what is God looking for in the world? What is going on? We can talk a little bit about that. And we're in the middle of this uh, plague. Uh, that's, that's a very biblical, sort of a place to be with plagues and famines and so on. We have this coronavirus thing going on. Uh, What is God doing, maybe you would ask, and maybe you have a thought, maybe in your church and your congregation you've been worshiping and getting into God's Word, and maybe you have some insight, some thought you'd like to bring to us, or just a question as well about what God is doing in these times in which we are living here in the 21st century. So give me a call. I'd love to hear from you, 210-340-9585 and uh we'll talk about all things biblical tonight, as I said we'll get into uh we'll continue in the books of first and second Corinthians uh last week, we talked about the first twelve chapters of the book of first Corinthians, and tonight we begin with uh, that very very interesting, very beautiful chapter of the bible It's called the Love Chapter of the Bible and it doesn't mean that that's what the only place where the <laughs> where, where God's love is spoken of or where love is, uh, is defined and, and identified and encouraged among uh, God and his people. Uh, but there's a beautiful, almost poetic chapter here that Paul writes, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And we'll, we started out with that this week. And uh, we'll start our conversation about the love chapter of the Bible, 1 Corinthians 13. Many of you have, many of you perhaps when you were married, it was part of your marriage ceremony, part of your marital uh, service. We talked about God's love. It says at the end, it summarizes, it said, now abides faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love, because love is eternal. Faith one day will be passé. Faith one day will be over. We won't be walking by faith anymore. We'll be walking by sight on those streets of gold in the very presence of our God and and harmony and and oneness with our God and with each other as the people of God in a place of glory. Uh, Hope will one day be fulfilled. Uh, Every longing and every hope that we have as we look to God for for fulfillment, for forgiveness, for cleansing, for renewal, for restoration, uh, uh, the, the work of God will be completed in our lives, every promise kept and every objective are reached so that we will be conformed to the image of our Savior Jesus and we will have glorified bodies as Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 15 and we will be in the presence of our God. So um, I, I said 1 Corinthians 15. I think 2 Corinthians 15 is what I meant to say. No, I didn't. 1 Corinthians, there it is. That's the kind of mistake you want to make, John. If you're going to make a mistake, that's the first mistake I made this week. I thought I was wrong, but I wasn't. See, that's that's the kind of mistake you want to make if you're going to make a mistake. Anyway, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 talks about the new body, the glorified body that we'll have, but Faith and hope will be fulfilled, but love is eternal. We'll continue to love in in that we'll be brought into that perfect harmony and oneness, the perfect love that exists between God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We will have been brought uh, by God's grace and His power. We will have been brought into the very relationship that exists in the Godhead itself. According to John chapter 17, Jesus' high priestly prayer there, John 17 he says, Father, bring them into that love, into that love relationship, into that perfect, harmonious oneness relationship that you and I have enjoyed from eternity past. That's God's plan for us, is to bring us into that perfect oneness relationship with uh, with God himself, with the Father, the Son, the Spirit, and with all the people of God throughout the ages. So, um that's why it says love is the greatest. And it's so, it is absolutely beautiful. The 1 Corinthians step, chapter 13 passage, by the way, our phone number is 210-340-9585. If you have a question or comment about the scriptures, what they mean to you, about what the Lord means to you, about what maybe you glean something these days uh, and from the Lord or from the scriptures or from your pastor in your church that could be helpful to all of us about what does God word God's word have to say about these times, these kind of days that we're living in. Uh, most people, if I get together with uh, friends or other believers or pastors or other leaders across the city, which I do all week long uh, with some frequency. I'm in touch with many, many different individuals through the week. Most people uh, start out the conversation and say, how are you doing these days? And they'll say something, shake their heads and go, wow, these are just crazy times. This is just lunacy. It's just the the things going on are just unprecedented and, and uh, so on and so on. They're just – Kind of shake their heads and and never happened anything like this before. Well, these things uh, have a way of happening. You know, in the proverbs we're told that I I guess in Ecclesiastes, nothing new under the sun. Uh, Everything has happened somewhere before, some in some setting. But these are incredible times. They're remarkable, challenging times. What do you think God is doing? What is actually truly? going on and why is all of this happening um, maybe you have a thought about it I'd like to hear from you and I'm sure our listeners would as well like to kind of glean from each other um, the, about what what we think the god of God of the Bible is doing in these times well first Corinthians chapter uh, eleven and twelve uh, Paul begins to talk about this theme of of oneness, of harmony, of order. Uh, he tells the people in Corinth, you know, that, that uh, to be careful about in their public worship. He, he, he cautions women to be very uh, careful, uh, to be modest, uh, not to be uh, putting themselves forward in, in, uh, in a way. I think it seems very clear to me that Paul was very being sensitive to the situation of the people of Corinth. They lived in a city where, uh, as I said before, women had a prominent role in the pagan, uh, godless religions of, of the city, and the, in the temple of Aphrodite, and he cautioned them about being too outward, too overt, and to be modest uh, in, in their behavior, and their dress, and so on, uh, in, in their presence among in the church, he Paul is not one who hates women by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, he, he he himself talks about the unity that we have in Christ. There's neither male nor female, nor Greek nor nor Jewish nor Greek. I mean, he he breaks down all of these barriers, and in, the, in especially among the people of God, there is oneness and harmony and mutual support, uh, one for for the other. And so he he mentions that, but at the same time, uh, he is cautioning them in the practical sense because of the city they live in for women to be very careful about their testimony, about their behavior, so as to bring glory to their Savior Jesus and to to not be confused with the pagan uh, temple of Aphrodite or pagan believers as well. Now, there, there were several... Things he he spoke about. One was the role of women. Was was the role of uh, order at the Lord's supper, uh, whenever they came together to uh, enjoy the, the supper of the Lord together, when oh, they ate together to be gracious to each other, be generous, uh, and so on. And uh, let me see what else. The the oneness uh, the oneness theme is very important in Corinth because if you remember in the very first chapter of Corinthians Paul is going to be addressing immediately a lack of harmony, a lack of oneness in the church in Corinth there was some bad feelings, there was some lack of unity there were some uh, there, there were those who were living in sin and being a part of the congregation openly living in disobedience to God's laws to God's uh, to Morality, God's laws of morality, and so on, uh, sexual immorality going on, and he had to deal with that and try to to bring about some harmony and oneness in terms of dealing uh, with disobedience in the in the church. And in fact, is that he calls upon them and instructs them how to exercise spiritual discipline in the congregation. I don't know if you've ever been a member of a church where discipline needed to be and was uh, rightfully, rightly, and correctly exercised. Uh, I have been in uh, those situations. I have pastored congregation where uh, it was necessary to to discipline, to uh, act on behalf of the congregation uh, with uh, a lifestyle going on in in the congregation. It's not easy to go. And confront someone and to someone you love and care for, but to tell them very straightforwardly and with love that, you know, this needs to change. We we can't have that in part of the congregation and waiting and hoping for a response of faith and and repentance and turning back to the Lord. But if it doesn't happen, then, of course, you have to continue forward with, with the idea of church discipline. Now, it's almost a thing of the past nowadays. I don't know anybody. Uh, I, I suppose I wouldn't know about it anyway. It's, it shouldn't be particularly public to anybody. But I'm not sure how often church discipline is exercised in the congregations uh, of our nation around the world, around the world differently, I, I suppose, in different cultures and situations. But here in our U.S. culture, I, I don't know if that's it's exercised that often but paul has to talk about church discipline and he has to talk about unity the first thing he does in chapter 1 uh, chapter 1 verses 1 through 10 10 times he mentions jesus christ 10 times in the first 10 verses because you know there was a there were those who were debating i'm i i'm a follower of paul i'm a follower of apollos i'm a follower of this leader or that leader or that teacher this teacher and Paul had ten times, he says, we are we are followers all of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the head of the body. He is our only Lord. And uh, that's a very important lesson that Paul brings out over and over again as he uh, tries to instruct this, this congregation that he loves so much. As I said, he lived there for about three, three and a half years among them and helped them. And so when he heard of these problems, it was... Um, it was a very uh, sad uh, care. It was a difficult situation for him to hear of the problems they were having, but he wrote with grace and with love to them. Now, this chapter on 13 comes just as he's talking about the harmony and oneness in the church among the people of God, that there, the, uh, the, the Holy Spirit distributes spiritual gifts to all the members of the church, the Holy Spirit is the, uh, the, uh, wh- the one who equips believers, and he lays out there a number of the gifts of the Spirit, that we, some can help others, some are givers, some are leaders, some are administrators, some um, have the gift of, of prayer and faith. Uh, for others, uh, that we, that I'm not sure this the list that we have is exhaustive. There are several lists. Corinthians has a list here. Ephesians lists another group of, uh, of uh, these gifts of the Spirit to the body of Christ. And those are at work. And each of us as believers have at least one gift, that one way in which the Holy Spirit will use you to benefit the body of Christians. Uh, And so that's why we need to go to church. That's why we need to be together uh, and and share life and life experience and and, uh, share our, our understanding and our insights about the Lord, our experiences in Christ with each other, because God is going to use you in some way to affect and to benefit other believers in the body. And he's going to use them to bring growth, and health and strength to you. So we need to be exercising exercising our spiritual gifts. But then he comes to chapter 13, and he says, this is going to be the greatest gift of all. Now let me show you, he says, a way of life that is best of all. And we get into chapter 13. We'll come back and look at it in just a moment. A beautiful love chapter of the Bible, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Our phone number is 210-340-9585. Don't go away. Give us a call if you'd like. We'd love to hear from you. We'll be right back. This is the Bible Live with Soapy Dollar. have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He is trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. He hath loosed the fateful lightning of his terrible swift sword. His truth is marching on. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Listening to the Bible live with Soapy Dollar. All right, we are back. Happy Fourth of July, everyone. I hope that you did celebrate our freedom and the blessing that God has given over this great land. I hope you took time, with you and your family, or had time to celebrate and uh, thank God. For the privilege, the awesome privilege that we have had to be born and raised in this nation or uh, naturalized citizens of this nation, uh, we, we are truly blessed by God's presence, by the presence and the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ in our nation. Uh, we have many things for which to be grateful, and I hope you were able to celebrate that this 4th of July, as I mentioned before. And uh, we'll get to that theme because actually, at this time of the year, we're reading always uh, the books of First and Second Corinthians, and liberty and freedom is one of the great themes of of First and Second Corinthians. If I remember to, uh, I'm looking at a passage here in Second Corinthians. We'll get to it a little bit later. Um, when oh, he talks about the. The veil, the glory of the new covenant, the glory of the uh, of the coming of Messiah, when Jesus the Messiah arrived and did His work of atonement of paying the penalty of our sin, uh, um, substitutionary atonement, taking our place so that we could be forgiven of our sin. Then the the this new covenant, this new relationship with God by faith and trust in Him, and, and specifically in the Messiah who has come, who is now present among them, uh, that is different from trusting in God's goodness and grace and mercy than the fact that he's going to send a Messiah someday. Uh, in that time and that era, then we had God's commands, and people by faith uh, obeyed God's commands and sought to obey his commands, not in order to be saved, not to earn salvation, but as evidence of their faith and their trust in the God who gave those laws and who had promised to send a redeemer, a savior, one who would fulfill the law perfectly without sin, and then He who knew no sin would become sin for us. So uh, I'm trying to put that in a little bit of a context here in the in the New Testament. Now uh, he says that that old covenant uh, was glorious, and, and when God gave it, uh, Moses had uh, his face shone because he had been in the very presence of God. And so on. And the old covenant was glorious, by by, uh, no no doubt, by every uh, measure, it was glorious and beautiful, and still is. But nothing to be compared now with the new covenant that brings, in fact, salvation, that does indeed bring salvation through the Messiah who has now come. And he says, so. Um, now that the old covenant is passed, and so on, he said that that there. Whenever someone turns to God, He said that, that the veil is removed from them. They can see. We uh, see, uh, let me see if I can see what it says, Whenever someone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. That veil of confusion and and wondering about who God is and what He's doing. For the Lord is to the, is the Spirit, and wherever the Spirit of the Lord is, says there is freedom. There is freedom. And he's establishing the point now that we are in Christ, we have the freedom. We are new people in Christ, and we have the freedom to to fulfill the law. We have the freedom and the power resident within us now because of the Holy Spirit to uh, live God's laws. He is replacing our fallen character, our sinful, selfish uh, um, impulses and ideas, and he is replacing those with the very character of Christ himself, building us in conforming us to the image of Christ. So, um, And the Lord, who is the Spirit, makes us more and more like himself as we are changed into his glorious image. So that that's a wonderful passage there, the, the book of Corinthians, particularly at this time of the year, the 4th of July, because it, it takes head on this theme of freedom that we have. God is a God of freedom, even to the point... Uh, ultimately that uh, men and women are even free to reject God. We are free to reject that relationship with God and and to not trust in Him and to disbelieve and to we choose to believe something else. Uh, And so we have that freedom. God has given us that freedom. Uh, That's that's the basic decision that every human being is on uh, planet Earth to make, God or no God. Do I want God? Do I desire God? Do I love God? Do I believe in Him and I want to follow God and and live for Him, for His glory, uh, and with Him and with the people of God, or do I not? That's the ultimate decision that each of us make, and we are free to make the decision that you would make there. Um, uh, Otherwise, we stay in bondage to our own sin and our sinful, selfish nature. Uh, We stay in bondage to that, but when we choose God, he sets us free from that old nature and our uh, being entrapped by the temptations and by the uh, tendencies of selfishness and fears that lead us to selfishness and sin. And we, He begins to liberate us uh, and by the work of His Spirit in our lives. So all of that is spoken of in 2 Corinthians chapters 1 through 3, that freedom that we have. Now, let me return to 1 Corinthians 13. It's hard to talk about this passage Uh, It probably is more powerful just to read it. If I could speak all the languages of earth and of angels, but but didn't love others, I would only be a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I had the gift of prophecy, if I could preach, and if I understood all of God's secret plans and possessed all knowledge, and if I had such faith that I could even move mountains, but I don't love others, I would be nothing." If I gave everything I have to the poor and even sacrificed my body, I could boast about it, but if I didn't love others, I would have gained nothing. You can see the the power of, of uh, the words here, the beauty of the words uh, the the emphasis that Paul is giving. love is that distinctive feature that we have as the people of God. Some of people have, uh, I remember in some of my studies they talk about the mark uh, of the beast in the book of Revelation on the 666, mark of the beast, and so on. But there's a mark of uh, the redeemed as well. And some have said that the mark uh, on us as believers is love. And it defines love. Love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It does not demand its own way. It is not irritable. It keeps no record of being wronged. It does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Love never gives up. Love never loses faith. It's always hopeful and endures through every circumstance. It never fails. Uh, Prophecy and speaking in unknown languages. Now, I'm going to talk about those in just a moment. Speaking in unknown languages and special knowledge will become useless, but love will last forever. Now our knowledge is partial and incomplete, and even the gift of prophecy reveals only part of the whole picture. But when full understanding comes, these partial things will become useless. When I was a child, I spoke and thought and reasoned as a child. But when I grew up, I put away childish things. Now we see things imperfectly, imperfectly as in a cloudy mirror. But we will see everything with perfect clarity then. All that I know now is partial and incomplete. But then I will know everything completely, just as God now knows me completely. Three things will last, uh, continue to abide: faith, hope, and love. The greatest of these is love, and I mentioned uh, why the greatest of these love uh, might well be because love is eternal. With faith and hope will be completed one day, fulfilled uh, in in us, but love will go on to abide just as God the Father the Son and the Spirit dwell together in a perfect harmonious oneness and love for each other uh, love for each other and their character and their desire their their objective their goal their intent and then finally in their action they are perfectly one uh, and that's how we can know the Father the Son and the Spirit truly correctly even, as one, one true and living God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. It's the oneness of love that is the secret of our strength. It's not our diversity. It's our oneness in Christ and our love for him that unites us across all different kinds of the differences and distinctives that exist among human beings, languages, cultures, uh, race, ethnicity, skin color, gender, generational oneness, across all of these different barriers that we have this oneness in Christ, that love that we have for one another as the people of God. That is the great power that we have. It's our oneness in the Lord. And now in that oneness, we can understand and we can appreciate each other's distinctiveness. We can uh, we can appreciate uh my being Native American, my being Mescalero Apache, I can appreciate a Sioux Indian, or uh, or I can uh, appreciate the Comanche, or I can—people comed- <laughs> from other tribes and distinct cultures and societies and languages, uh, red, yellow, black, and white, polka-dotted, we are all precious in His sight. So the, the, it's our oneness that it, is our strength that allows us, then, in Christ, to love all people of all different backgrounds and, and, and colors and differences and experiences in, in Christ. So that's that's, um, that's a beautiful truth that is taught for us here in the book of 1 Corinthians. Probably uh, the central truth is that oneness, love, that's at the core of the lessons of this first letter that Paul writes to the believers in Corinth. Now, he talks about... Uh, the resurrection of Christ, he talks about the resurrection from the dead, uh, that we will have uh, uh, when Christ returns or when we pass from this life into the next, uh, we will go to be with the Lord, absent from the body, to be present with the Lord. Uh, and then when Christ returns as well, that we will have uh, the resurrection body will be very distinct, very different. It will be a body that, that is um, compatible with the spiritual Environment in which we will live. We will move from this environment. We live uh, here on planet Earth. Uh, I don't want to get too uh, specific and technical about, from a point of view of physics and so on, uh, <coughs> how we live in time and space uh, and, and so on. But uh, we will live, we'll still live. There will be some level of understanding of the passage of time. There will still be some understanding of, of how we perceive our environment, heaven's uh, environment. There will be some way we perceive and communicate with, with each other, <coughs> but we will different from the limitations we experience in this life. Uh, some people have mentioned that the new body, the resurrection body we receive, uh, that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that that resurrection body, was, we have a preview of it in some ways in the life of Jesus of Nazareth, his resurrected body uh, he disappeared. he could change the shape uh, the appearance of his body evidently we see from from the from the books uh, the Gospels and in the book of Acts <clears throat> he passes he appears in a room, a closed room, the doors and windows are locked, but Jesus appears uh, therefore able to move evidently through uh, the uh, walls or or windows or doors. Uh, so many things that we can look at in the resurrected body of Christ, and yet it still was a body. He ate food to prove that. He said, look, I'm, I'm, I'm going to eat here with you. And he told Thomas, put your hand in my side, touch the wounds in my fingers, in my hands. And so uh, the body we have will be a body that is able to uh, react and respond in, in a more spiritual dimension and world. Uh, and uh, it'll be different from the body we have now. We're told in First Corinthians chapter 15, and, of course, Paul uses that occasion to celebrate the resurrection, the fact that uh, the, the, the resurrection from the dead, when Jesus rose from the grave. This is not just some uh, crazy little thing that these Christians believe. Th- this either happened or didn't happen. Jesus of Nazareth was... Definitely killed. Uh, Clear evidence for that. He was pronounced dead by two professional uh, executioners uh, uh, from the cross. He was placed in a a tomb hewn out of stone, rock. Uh, Two-ton stone was placed over the doorway. The seal of Rome was placed over it. He was wrapped uh, in in cumbersome uh, burial clothes uh, and and uh, a guard of Roman soldiers was placed to keep the anyone from coming and taking his body, but he rose from the dead. Uh, he knew life came there's a new act of creation, he rose a new uh, a, a new a new life, and that we too, because of that uh, we too know that we will be resurrected from the dead. We will indeed as well have a resurrection body. All that is true of Christ as the, he is the prototype. He is the firstborn of the twice born. All that was true of Jesus. Now is true of us because of our faith and trust in him. Uh, we are born again. Like Christ, we are conceived by the Holy spirit. Like Christ was, uh, physically, you have now been born again in Christ. You are a, a new person conceived by the spirit and, and, uh, we will indeed resurrect, and our body will be transformed into a glorified resurrection body. And then he celebrates and says, O death, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? For sin is the sting that results in death, and the law gives sin its power. But thank God, he gives us victory over sin and death, through our Lord Jesus Christ so uh, Paul closes with that passage in first in 15 and he talks about in chapter 16 he reminds the believers in Corinth that they were gathering uh, an offering voluntarily gathering an offering to send help to the believers in Jerusalem uh, because they were undergoing a great deal of persecution uh, famine and they were sending a, a love gift to the believers in Jerusalem. And Paul um, compliments them and, and he commends them for doing that for their generosity and love. Well, that's the book of 1 Corinthians. Then this second, there was a second letter, and this actually, I think, is the third letter, was the book of 2 Corinthians. Uh, and Paul is writing back, he's t- catching up with them. He has spoken to Titus. Titus was a friend and co worker of Paul's, a young pastor that Paul mentored or discipled, and uh, he is caught up with Titus, and Titus has given him information as to how things were going in Corinth. And so uh, Paul now writes to them again, encouraging them uh, in the Lord, commending them for taking the steps that he encouraged them to take in the first letter. And one of the men, remember I talked talked to you before about uh, spiritual discipline, in the body, in the church, they had disciplined one of their members, and as it turns out, in Second Corinthians, uh, it looks like Paul commends him and says, "A wonderful thing has happened that th- that person, because of the loving discipline that was admon- that was dis- uh, applied to him, that the church disciplined him, uh, and th- that he had indeed repented of his sin and had come back into fellowship." with the congregation. So that's a wonderful report that he got and he commends them for their courage in applying loving discipline uh, to their members. So um, that's kind of the, the letters, uh, in a very quick way, an overview of first and Second Corinthians. Uh, I've mentioned the big chapter 13 about the priority of love. Um, there' are some phrases in the book that I want to mention though, uh, and I want to re remind you, as we're talking about, uh, by the way, the phone number here is 210-340-9585. 210-340-9585. Love to hear from you. If you have a thought about this passage or these books of the Bible or any other book of the Bible that really has been meaningful and helpful to you and encouraging, uh, all things biblical. That's our theme here on the Bible Live broadcast. And maybe you have a thought about the the lives, that what's going on in our world today, politically, socially, uh, medically, in terms of health and so on, uh, internationally even, what is God doing? What do you uh, perceive from the scriptures that God is doing in our world today? I, I, uh, I Anything that's on your mind, I'd love to hear from you and allow you to join me here on the Bible Live broadcast and uh, maybe share just a passage or a verse that means a lot to you. That how a testimony of how God's Word has made a difference in your life. 210-340-9585. Okay, now, um, in the Corinthian church, Paul pr- particularly admonished and gave clear instructions about the role of women in the church and the practice of speaking in tongues. These were, uh, uh, and, and my question is, why why did Paul give them these instructions? Uh, and it, the, the answer is because both of these were prevalent in the pagan temples of Corinth, in the pagan religion. Um, the role of women was very prominent, and, and as in the Old Testament as well, as all through the Hebrew Scriptures, uh, there was a great deal of immorality and sexual impurity uh, and temptation, often the people of Israel Uh, were led into temptation by the uh, sins of the flesh of these pagan religions. Well, this was very prevalent and powerful in Corinth, and so Paul was very careful and clear to admonish them about uh, sexuality, about the the role of women in the congregation because of the presence of uh, women, the prominent role of women in the pagan religions of that era, Aphrodite and so on. And also the speaking in tongues. Now, when we say speaking in tongues, a lot of people—if you've not heard teaching on this, if you're just totally uh, out of the out of the church—you may have wondered, "What in the world is this speaking in tongues?" The Bible has two different uh, uh, kinds/types of speaking in tongues. One is when you actually speak another language without learning it, and that is what you see exercised in Acts chapter two. Remember, when the when the Holy Spirit manifested his presence in a very new way among the people of God, just as Jesus promised that he said, when I go away, guys, I, I need to go away. Why? So the Father will send the Comforter, the Paraclete, the Holy Spirit, the one who's going to come alongside you and escort you and, and be your faithful and unfailing escort to glory. So in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit manifests his presence in this new way and And the believers left the upper room where they were in fellowship, and they went out into the streets of Jerusalem where this happened, and they began to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. But they they preached it in languages they didn't know, they didn't understand. It said, and see, of course, this was in Jerusalem during the time of Passover, and there were visitors, there were people from all over the world who came to Jerusalem to observe and to celebrate Passover in Jerusalem. And so they all heard the message of the gospel that day in their own language because the, the Spirit of God gave this gift of tongue, speaking another language without learning it. Well, there is another word called glossolalia, and this is speaking uh, what is called ecstatic utterance. Um, Ecstatic utterance was very prevalent as well, uh, just like the role of women in the pagan religions. Ecstatic utterance was very prominent in the pagan religions. They would work themselves up into a into a uh, um, what would I say into a uh, a trance, a trance like uh, by sleep deprivation, by drugs, by alcohol. Uh, they would. And, and chanting and so on they would work themselves into an emotional uh, just an emotional tizzy totally out of control and then they would just blah blah, blah 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 they just garbled uh anything and and the temple priest would 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 pretend to interpret that to say whatever they wanted to say about a particular va- uh, uh battle or about a particular king or something uh, and so that was that was very prominent. That was the way the oracles spoke. Uh, and, and if you see any true to life uh, movies based on those eras, you will see that uh, that uh, ecstatic utterance being used. Well, uh, ecstatic utterance is is not in and of itself. Uh, uh, Hmm. being emotional about our relationship to God if you are filled with the joy of the Lord and delight in the Lord and just freedom in the Lord and it just overwhelms you and you're in God's presence and worshiping then you might also you might come to the point where you know you need to you, you can't pray anymore with your voice because you, your, your printer, your mouth, can't stay up with your brain. The praise and worship. And then, so you just go into that state of just praising God. And and uh, uh, it, it happens. It's, uh, it's not one of the more valuable of tongues. And so this is, Paul warns them about it, though, because it can lead to a great deal of confusion and chaos. So uh, because it was prevalent in the... Uh, Pagan religions, he warns them about it, its practice in the congregation. Well that's our music. We've got to, we're ready for our, our last segment coming up. 210-340-9585 is our phone number. We'll come back and finish up our considerations of the books of first and second Corinthians and introduce the book of Job, which we'll be reading this coming week in just a moment. Don't go away. You're listening to The Bible Live with Soapy Dollar. You will hear our face cry, and you will answer by and by. Now when you feel the prayer return, then you know a little fire is burning. You will find a little talk when Jesus makes it run. This is the Bible Live with Soapy Dollar. That is, of course, our prayer to the Lord that He would bless our nation once again, not necessarily because we deserve it, <laughs> uh, but b- by His grace and mercy that He would bless our land. I hope that you join in that prayer tonight and uh, each day. Now we are living through some very difficult times, with riots in the streets and uh, all kinds of demonstrations and the tearing down of public uh statues and uh, so on, just a whole lot of confusion and chaos. There are clearly those uh, in our land who dislike America as was constituted and are very displeased with what we have become, and, and we can always improve. That's one of the great things about America is that we do hold that promise of of, of uh, correcting ourselves. And we've had to do that a number of times during our history. Uh, and sinful men um, do sinful, harmful, terrible things. And uh, our nation has been a part of that uh, in, in ways like all nations and all people. But this nation is unique in the sense that we have that ability, that capability given to us, in fact, probably from the gospel itself, the idea of we we can admit our mistakes, we can we can correct ourselves, and the form of government that we enjoy, the representative republic that we are, it allows us then the people themselves, to change, to repent, to seek God's face and to to want the very best uh, for our nation and our in our land. So uh, that's, even if that means correcting, changing mistakes that we have made, and so on. So uh, hopefully this is a time that God will teach us some wonderful things as a people. And I guess I'm particularly talking to you as not only American citizens and, and uh, those, because of all people... Uh, we choose our leaders. I mean, isn't that an amazing thing? I've often wondered what would Jesus have said, what would Paul have preached and said if they lived in a representative republic, if they lived in a in a place where the people chose, directly chose their leaders uh, to represent them, those who would make the laws and so on. Now... It's always been true. At some level, people choose their leaders because uh, they just do. I mean, even the time of David and Solomon and Rehoboam and Jeroboam and the kings of Israel, if they didn't like a certain king, if they didn't, they would rebel. I mean, people have a way of their voice being known, and we can see that all through history, even in the land of the monarchs. Uh, monarchs were removed, and monarchs were rebelled against. But here we live directly in a nation where we directly, peacefully choose our leaders, and then um, experience a peaceful transition from one leader to another, from one party to another, from one group to another. And uh, that has been that. That's the the legacy, the heritage we have as Americans and uh so now we're we're in a very difficult time. They say people say that America is divided perhaps as never before. I kind of don't believe that we fought a civil war uh thousands and thousands hundreds of thousands of our citizens uh from the north and the south died in a conflict uh in an effort to correct a mistake, an error that was being made in in the nation and uh and we did it. We made it through it and and uh Great leader, uh, for example, a great man called Abraham Lincoln, who was a a a believer himself, a a child of God, and a a gifted leader, courageous leader. And uh, we we came through that difficult time. Now we we may be going through another similar time. I don't know, and uh, I'm not sure how the Lord will lead us. I have my own thoughts, but we're not here to celebrate my thoughts, but yours. So give us a call if you'd like two ten three four zero ninety five eighty five if you want to visit a little bit more talk about what God is doing in our world today. I did. There was just a couple more things I wanted to mention about First and Second Corinthians. Um, one, there's a passage in First Corinthians fifteen that I have gotten a question about this this past week. Uh, one of the folks who is listening to the scriptures uh, on the podcast uh, that i've mentioned you can go to the biblelive.com and you can find all of our readings and, and uh, by on the date that they were read and you can go back and re-listen to some of these uh, passages as we make our way through the entire bible every year and uh, and he heard the passage in first corinthians 15 verse 29. And he's talked about people being baptized for those who are dead. What does Paul mean when he talks about people baptized for those who are dead? Uh, and uh, this is a passage that has been um, usurped, has been co-opted by some groups, uh, some um, uh, small groups that, that, that kind of have unusual, uh, maybe unbiblical views but uh, this is one of those that they celebrate, they, they actually baptize people uh, in their temple for those who are dead, and you have a substitutionary baptism, and that could, that could never be what Paul meant, and Paul would never have said that, he's very clear in other passages about how one comes into a relationship with God through one's personal faith in Jesus, the Messiah. And one's personal relationship and personal response to uh, what God reveals to them of Himself in the gospel. So that this idea of uh, being baptized for the dead—it really, more simply, is just—it's one generation of believers who replace those who have died. Uh, and, you know, in other words, uh, in my generation of believers from from the baby boomers. Many of us came to Christ, came to faith in Christ, and we replaced the generation of believers that went ahead of us as they slowly passed away into into eternity. And we began to, we then began became the leaders. Now another generation of believers is coming to the uh, to be prominent today. Uh, someday we baby boomers all will have passed from the scene. We will have passed on into eternity, or Jesus will have returned. But 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 let's say we we die and we go on into eternity where well, there'll be another generation of believers, uh, young believers, that, that uh, our children and grandchildren today who are following after Christ, you will be the generations who uh, who will have been baptized. And we're not talking about water here. We're talking about a baptized, a spiritual baptism uh, into the body of Christ and Christ baptizing us with His Holy Spirit, uh, with the Spirit of God. So, it's the replacement generation for the past generation of believers. Those are those are the ones who have been baptized for those who are now passed away, those who are now dead. I <coughs> um, hope that makes sense to you. Let me see. Uh, there's also a passage about the first and second Adam. The first Adam was Adam and Eve in the garden, and the second or last Adam is Jesus of Nazareth. And the reason that that similarity, the reason that language is used is because Jesus now is the, he is the firstborn of the twice-born. He's the firstborn of the race, the human race of the redeemed. Paul, uh, Adam was the race of the human race. We are all uh, descendants of Adam, and uh, the life of Adam uh, in, flows in our body. Biologically, we are all fruits of that, the first Adam. Uh, It's the life of Adam that lives within us. And his fallen nature, the the inherent, innate, irrevocable, irresistible tendency to selfishness and evil, that's become a part of our experience as well. The Bible calls it the old nature, the old fallen nature, uh, that we were all in Adam. So when Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, the entire race of humanity was located within them. Uh, Literally, biologically, all of the... Uh, all of the DNA, all the genetic material that would make up all of the human beings who have ever lived since them, was in Adam and Eve. So when they fell into sin, under the consequences, under the uh, the condemnation of our, their sin, the whole race came under the condemnation of sin in Adam and Eve. Now Jesus is a another Adam. He uh, is a, was a special creation, conceived by God in the womb of Mary, and grew up. A, Passed through every phase of humanity, as every human being does, uh, the time of gestation in the womb, then he was born, then he was a, a, a baby, a helpless baby, a toddler, and so on and so on. He passed through every phase of what it means to be a human being, and yet without sin. Without, he never chose to act of his own initiative, his own prerogative, his own uh, nature. He always depended entirely and uh, trusted in the God the Father obeying the Father, trusting in the leadership and the guidance and the power of the Holy Spirit at work within him as a man. See, Jesus didn't do his miracles because he was the Son of God. He didn't preach his great sermons because he was the Son of God. He preached them as a man, trusting, obeying God's Word, following the leadership of the Spirit, and and so on. He lived the perfect life of faith and trust and obedience, submission to the Father as a man. And then he who knew no sin became sin. For us, so that that's why he's called the last Adam, because now he is the firstborn, and uh, as in his role as the Messiah, he became the firstborn of the twice born. He's the he's the the he's the progenitor of the new race of the redeemed, and so um, now that uh, not only do we experience the life of Adam biologically, physically, and within us, we are now experiencing the life of Christ within us. It is him living his uh, His supernatural life in and through all of us, his children, who have been born into his kingdom uh, by being born again. So I hope that makes sense to you, uh, this talk about the first Adam and the last Adam. That is, uh, theologically, the the position we are now in Christ is that we are members of the race of the redeemed and Jesus being the last Adam. Uh, let me see if there's anything else here that I wanted to mention particularly to you. Uh, there's so much in the books of First and Second Corinthians. no way to cover it even in, in an hour and a half this evening. But let's go back now and look at the book of Job. The Job was a contemporary, uh, uh, it's likely contemporary in the time uh, of Abraham and the patriarchs. Uh, he, uh, his, the time, his, the, uh, his life, what we know of his life here is told uh, as separate from, it doesn't mention Abraham it doesn't mention the laws of God it doesn't uh, mention that uh, it is believed that Job is the first uh, the first book, the oldest book of the Bible may have been written put in writing uh, some years later, but the story itself, the story was set uh, during the era of the patriarchs. And uh, there are various linguistic features in the book that we can't go into in detail, but they suggested suggest that it might have been written later, written down, but it um, was the life of Job that it characterizes is uh, took place uh, before, Abraham before the time of Abraham's calling and so on. Now the the book is about. It's a very interesting book, and we only read uh, chapters one through five. And it's a long book as well. Let me tell you what happens now in the first opening chapter uh, chapters of the book. We are we are given the behind the scenes story. Uh, Job is a godly man who loves God. He honors God, his family, his children. Uh, he is very wealthy, a prosperous man. He fears God, stayed away from evil. He has seven sons and three daughters, uh, you know, ten children. He owns 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels and so on. He's very wealthy, very prosperous, uh, the richest person in that area, in, in his region. And uh, <clears throat> he would, as I said, mentor his children in the faith to honor God, to love God. Uh, they He would get up early in the morning, present burnt offerings for them, which was a, a way of of praying to God and offering, uh, uh, offering uh, as God had commanded uh, to them, offering to God to commune with God and to praying for his family and, and his children. Then it, in chapter 1, we have this very unique scene of the angels of God coming to present themselves before the Lord. And among them came the accuser. Now, What we've come to understand from um, uh, Isaiah chapter 14, Ezekiel chapter 28, uh, from even the book of Genesis, these scenes and specific situations in the Bible, and Jesus himself addresses the person of Satan. Uh, The Bible tells us a picture that there were three archangels, Michael the warrior Gabriel, the messenger, remember Gabriel took a message to Mary, he took messages to, for example, to, um, Daniel. And then there was a third archangel named Lucifer, son of the morning, who, uh, it is, the picture is painted of one who is, who attends a personal attendant to God. He is, he is one who supervises the, uh, the, um, Choir of heaven, he supervises the in the temple in the presence of God. Uh, is one who knows the presence of God. He is his beauty, uh, his music, art. Uh, he, he is a very beautiful creature, identified in some ways with uh, music and worship. But this this member of the uh, the angelic leadership, uh, this one. Pride was found in him. We're told in Isaiah and in uh, Ezekiel and other books of of the Bible as well. And he fell from God's presence. He said, "I will sit on the throne. I will ascend to to Zion. I will, I will, I will, I will." And pride and arrogance uh, was found in him, and he was cast from God's presence uh, to earth. This is his realm of of experience. Moment, he only he is not God. He's not. He's not omniscient, omnipotent, everywhere present, he's not eternal, he had a beginning, he was a created creature, but he is powerful as a spiritual being, and he serves the purposes of God here on planet Earth, as God is made the human race to call out a people for himself. And uh, so Satan is here, he tempts and tries to usurp and, and destroy the work of God among the human race as we see him tempting Adam and Eve in the garden and so on. So Satan appears with the heavenly in the heavenly court with the other angels, and um, God speaks to him and says, Where have you come from? And he says, I've been patrolling the earth, watching everything that's going on. And then look at this, folks. God brags on Job. He, that is the most amazing thing to me. <laughs> I, I would just love it if God would brag on Soapy Dollar. I, I, I mean, I, I have no—I have. Don't worry, I have no uh, visions of grandeur here. It would just—how wonderful if it be with your faith and your faithfulness and your obedience with such uh, in God that that He would brag on you. Well, He brags on Job. He's the finest man in all the earth. He's blameless, a man of complete integrity. Uh, he fears God and stays away from evil. But and but satan says job job has is has good reason to fear you you've always put a wall of protection around him in his home and his property and his family and you've made him prosper and everything look how rich he is and so on if you took that away he would surely curse you and so god allows satan to test now this is uh, a role that Satan still carries on. He tests the faith of God's people. He tempts us. He tests us. He he feeds us lies and, and distortion and and uh, appeals to our ego and to our pride. Uh, Satan still does that to put our faith to the test and to make us stronger, and God use, could use him to make us stronger even. As you'll see at the end of the book of Job, Job is going to come out of this stronger than ever, but this test is real so what happens then is that uh, Job is tested. His his um they his possessions are stolen from him. Three bands of Chaldean raiders have stolen your camels and killed your servants. I'm the only one who escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, another messenger said, Your sons and daughters were feasting. Suddenly, a powerful wind swept in from the wilderness and hit the house on all sides. Your house collapsed and all your children are dead. And this was a natural disaster. Boy, I mean, really, uh, we, we don't want to attribute natural disasters to God sometimes because, well, that's what happened here. Uh, a hurricane came, and then so he loses all of his possessions. He loses his children and his family, and then uh, he Satan again comes, and, and he says, uh, have you noticed my servant Job? And he says, well, you you, you still, you, skin for skin, he'll give everything to save his life. He says, and God gives Satan permission. He says, okay, you must spare his life, but you can do with him as you please. You can take away his health. And so that was the second great test is Job's health was taken from him. And he came down with a, a terrible growth and boils on it from head to foot. He scraped his skin with a piece of broken pottery. Uh, he, he was in total and absolute misery, so much so that even his wife said to them, Are you still trying to maintain your integrity? Curse God and die. And, and most people have, you know, would say that that was not a good thing, but I, I've heard interpretations of her comments like, um, you know, go ahead, death would be better for you than being alive. Um but Job says, "You talk like a foolish woman. Should we accept only good things from the hand of God and never anything bad?" So in all of this, Job said nothing. So that's what we have. That's the test. See, we know what's going on behind the curtain. We know what the people, the rest of the people in the story, even Job's wife didn't know. We know what, and even Job did not know uh, the, what was going on here behind the scene in the spiritual dimension. But now enter the three friends of Job. There's these three friends come. They are quasi-believers. They have some idea of God, but they don't speak with uh, clarity. They don't speak with authority. And they come up with a very false perspective of God. There are three men. One is called Eliphaz, a a Temanite. I I don't know. uh, You'd have to go into the the people groups of that era to find out who these people are. But there are those who, uh, particularly the Jewish community, who believe they can tell us about each one of these individuals. Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. And they are the ones that are now going to begin to question Job and accuse him of being prideful and arrogant. The basic thing is, is that if you are sinful... You're gonna suffer, but if you're righteous, you're always gonna everything's always gonna go right for you. So this is a great book to talk about the sufferings of life, particularly and even for the people of God. We'll come back and finish and talk more about the book of Job next week here on the Bible Live. The Bible Live is dedicated to helping restore the Bible to our culture. Mailing address is P.O. Box 1888. That's box eighteen eight eight eight. San Antonio, Texas 78218 Hear the entire Bible every year on The Bible Live weeknights at 9.30 on this great station then join Soapy every Sunday evening at 9 o'clock for fun, inspiration and valuable prizes on The The Bible Bible Live Quiz Show visit our website BibleLive.com that's BibleLive.com for more information about Soapy and The Bible Live Broadcast You may also order materials at the website and make tax-deductible donations to help minister to our military personnel and broadcast the entire Bible every year to America and the world.